0: No more dull blades and no more problems processing your wild game. To check out all of the products from Outdoor Edge, visit OutdoorEdge.com. And at checkout, enter the discount code NATION30, that's nation 3 for 30% off of your purchase. You're listening to the Average Conservationist Podcast brought to you by Go Hunt and in partner with 2% for Conservation. Sign up today to become an insider at GoHunt.com. Getting 2% certified means you've made the same commitments as popular brands like Sitka, First Light, Stone Glacier, and seek outside in giving at least 1% of your time and dollars back to wildlife. But it's not just for outdoor companies. Breweries, contractors, coffee roasters, and even piano repair companies have earned 2% certification and stand out as leaders in their community for doing so. Businesses that are committed to conservation deserve your business when you shop. Learn more about 2% for Conservation at fish.com. wildlife.org. that's fishandwildlife.org. Fellow conservationists, welcome back to the Average Conservationist Podcast, and I'm your host, Marcus Ewing. Uh, Today, this is kind of the long-awaited episode that I know many of you have been wondering about, waiting for. Uh, Well, the wait is over. Today, I am joined by the piano repairman himself, Brandon Robertson. I know you guys have, anyone who's listened to the podcast for any amount of time has certainly heard me reference um, piano repair companies. Um, And we finally were able to make it happen. Brandon Robertson, the owner of Robertson Piano, uh, him and I got to chat, and it was a super cool conversation. Um, I mean, Music is one of those things that everyone likes music, right? I mean, everyone has their own taste, which is uh, you know a bit of an expression of individuality, if you will. Um, but it, all music is good, right? Like there's there's kind of no two ways about it. And talking with Brandon, I certainly uh, got a deeper appreciation for uh, his um, musical inclination. Um, you know, Brandon started off playing the piano at a young age. Uh, music has been uh, certainly uh, a big part of his uh, entire life, uh, even through, you know, being an adult. And we get to talk about, you know, how he kind of got set down the path of uh, tuning pianos to um, kind of pivoting a bit during the pandemic and now restoring pianos uh, for people, you know, we talk about you know the the piano being uh, kind of this um, rather large uh, kind of family heirloom that just gets passed down from generation to generation. Um, you know why? You know for for Brandon and listening to music, why it's you know probably a little bit different than it is for for you or I with you know his his training, uh, the schooling, and just um, again his his musical gift that he has. You know, he just he hears things differently, which I thought was is just a super cool uh thing because we all have that one thing uh whatever that is that you know we just have this deeper appreciation we're just able to understand it uh a little bit better than most maybe um and I think for you know for Brandon, I mean that's music is his thing uh you know we get to talk about <clears throat> how Brandon got involved in the outdoors uh later in life, and you know it became something. That he wanted to be able to experience with his son as he got older and really kind of, you know, change kind of the family uh, culture, I guess, when it comes to the outdoors and, you know, how that's perceived and, you know, bringing his son along with him when they do, you know, cleanups and and things like that. So, really fun conversation. I really enjoyed talking to Brandon. Uh, I think you guys uh, are really going to enjoy this one as well. So, episode 80. Brandon Robertson. Uh, Before that, I want to tell you about our friends at Stone Glacier. Um, I know you guys have heard me talk about it a ton uh, with some of the different packs that I use. Uh, The Avail 2200 is the one that I run primarily uh, for really any type of kind of day hunting, uh, turkey hunting, uh, whitetail, what have you. Uh, But I like it so much that I actually have another one on the way that I'm just going to use for like my everyday carry overnight trips things like that like it's just such a a versatile pack and there's so many uh great features uh about it that you know made me want to to have have a backup um you can obviously check them out at StoneGlacier.com. uh if you haven't by now check out the stone glacier app you can get that on itunes or google play uh and you can order right from the app as well and you can check out all the other cool gear that they have you know uh, we're in the holiday season, so now is a great time to pick something up for the uh, outdoor enthusiast in your life. Um, you really can't go wrong uh, with any of their products. So head over to StoneGlacier.com. All right, joining me today is the owner of Two Percent Certified Robertson Piano, Brandon Robertson. Brandon, how's it going this morning?
1: I'm doing great.
0: How are you? I'm doing well, thanks. It's uh, it's going to kind of sound repetitive to you because obviously we we talked a few minutes before we started recording but you know I've been indirectly mentioning you and your company really since the inception of the podcast so to finally be able to get you on the phone and to talk a little bit more uh, I'm certainly excited about it. I'm glad we finally got you on here.
1: Yeah I'm looking forward to it See, I remember the I listened to a few episodes of the podcast and I Actually, like paused it and went to the other room. and was like Gina. Tell, that's my wife's name, Gina. I told her, I was "Like check this out." <laughs> I know, it was like, "We're being talked about on a podcast. That's pretty cool."
0: No, that that that's awesome. I, I love I love the excitement uh, and the enthusiasm and being proud of you know what it is that uh, that you guys have built there. So, so I kind of I guess let's let's kind of set the stage a little bit here um obviously you know the the podcast is kind of centered around conservation the outdoors so tell me brandon how was it that that you were first really introduced to the outdoors
1: um i think that it's really just kind of been a side part of my life since i was real little i mean some of my best memories growing up are like camping with the family you know going fishing stuff like that and um it's just always been kind of a part of my life. And I think that's true for a lot of people in Alabama. We just have like so much, I mean, it's like 70% forest or something. I mean, there's, it, there's always some place you can go hang out. Um, you know, growing up, we would exit the subdivision and walk down the hill and go play in the creek. I mean, it was just something we always did. I, I don't think you can do that nowadays. My, my kid isn't allowed to go anywhere. I think we're all afraid that they're going to be taken away, but <laughs> we used to roam the, Roamed the neighborhood, roamed the woods growing up. And, um you know, when I got older, I think really fishing was the thing that I stuck to the most. I, my dad got me a shotgun sometime, maybe it was close to junior high or something like that. And I, you know, ashamed to admit that I would go out and, like, shoot random birds. <laughs> I don't even know what. <laughs> um, and, but, yeah, I mean, at some point, I've just sold the shotgun because, I mean, I, I told my dad I wanted to deer hunt. He didn't do that. None of my family hunted or anything. So one night he was like, okay, just go sit out here in the middle of the woods. And I literally sat on the ground and like waited for a deer to come and nothing came. And that was my whole experience with that. I eventually sold the gun because it wasn't really anything I was using. But um, I don't know. Like I said, it's just always been kind of a side part of my life. And um, I mean, even in college, like something about the water, you know, go in, you're stressed out or whatever, like, even if you're not catching anything, like just being on the water, being near the water, like that's always been something that's been like, like a peaceful place, a happy place or whatever to go to. Um So I don't know if that answers the question exactly.
0: Yeah, no, for sure. And uh you make a couple points in there about your upbringing and your childhood. And I mean, I grew up the same way Um where I mean, I don't want to, I mean, I lived in a small town, but I had woods kind of, you know, I could, I could hop on my bike and ride for two or three minutes. And there was, you know, a patch of woods where me and the neighbor kids would would go down there and build forts and, you know, just, just be kids in the woods. Right. And, and you're right. I don't know that I would let my kids today do the same things that I did growing up. I mean, obviously that was, you know, 30 years ago. Wow. I really just aged myself (laughs) there. (laughs) Yeah. But, uh, yeah, it's different, you know, obviously now than it was back then. And it's it's, it's very unfortunate, you know, because I would love to, you know, just let my kids, you know, roam around in the woods a little bit as long as I knew where they were at and that they were, you know, close to home. But, you know, back then, you know, we didn't have cell phones, so there was no way to, like, check in on us and, and stuff like that. I mean, if I wasn't home when I was supposed to, my parents would get in the car and, you know, kind of drive down the road to where they knew I was at, and holler out the window, Marcus, Marcus, you know, where are you at? Right. And, you know, I'd come stumbling out of the woods and, you know, get on your bike, come home, it's time for dinner, that type of thing. And it's a great way to grow up. And it's certainly a great way to kind of, you know, just have fun and really explore and kind of draw your own conclusions to the outdoors at a very young age, you know?
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: And the, the part that you mentioned about, you know, when you had a shotgun, you know, getting a shotgun, uh, I mean, that was my first, my first gun was a 20 gauge pump shotgun that I used. Uh, you know, I, I received it probably when I was around the same age that you said you were, you know, middle school somewhere in there and, you know, did some bird hunting and some, some waterfowl hunting and stuff like that. And, uh, yeah, it's, uh, those types of things are a great introduction to the outdoors and, and really kind of sparking, um, you know, a love and a passion for just the outdoors in general, whether you you stick with hunting or, you know, like you said, the being on the water and just fishing and just kind of the, the peacefulness that it brings to you.
1: Yeah, definitely. My, my stepdad, he does hunt. And I can't remember exactly when he and my mom got married. I want to say it was sometime in, um, I don't know, maybe I was in seventh or eighth grade or something. Um, and he bird hunts and, you know, has had bird dogs and stuff like that. And so that's always been neat to watch, but it's never been anything interesting to me. But I will say, like, I've always kind of seen it, you know, as, as a, something that somebody did. But I think his biggest contribution was really, like, he lived on a lake for a while. And so I would, when he and my mom were dating, like, I would go up there and, like, take his boat and just go fish and stuff like that.
0: So what is, what is the, I guess, tradition like for the outdoors in the south because you know i'm I'm here in michigan in the midwest and obviously there's a very kind of deep-rooted um you know tradition in the outdoors especially um uh, you know this time of year with uh deer hunting and stuff like that and deer camp and you know a way for people to 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 spend time with friends and family you know i know a lot of people that go to deer camp that you know they don't even hunt you know they just like the camaraderie that comes with it the you know kind of being with the guys or or you know you know, for for some, you know, sons or, or anything like that, you know, they get to spend time with their, their fathers and kids with their grandpas and all that. So what is, you know, what is kind of the outdoor traditions or, you know, what is that kind of scene like down in the South?
1: I honestly feel like I probably don't have a good handle on that, I, but I can tell you kind of what my impression is. Um, like I didn't start deer hunting until maybe four years ago or something. And that was just something I wanted to do because I wanted to learn how so that I could have something to do with my son because I'm like, we're raised, I'm raising him in Alabama. There's a chance he's going to fall into something like that. And I have nothing, I know nothing about it. Um, growing up, I feel like probably everybody went to some lake or pond or something and fished at some point, but I feel like maybe the hunting, is just kind of like a, if your family happens to hunt, then you do. Um, if they didn't, then you don't. And I, I kind of felt like separate from the guys who, who did all that, I didn't really hang out with them. Don't, don't know what their lives were like growing up. Exactly. Um, I, my cousin is the one, when I was like asking around like, Hey, somebody please help me learn how to do this. I don't even know what I, what I thought I needed to learn. I just felt like I couldn't just jump in and, and deer hunt myself. But (laughs) I asked my cousin who I knew hunted, um, you know, will you please help me? And I ended up going down with him to his hunting club where he grew up. Um, and, it was very much uh, there's these stands and there's a feeder, you know. At the time, over a hundred yards from the stand and just out of sight because that was the law. Like you didn't, you couldn't see the feeder, but it's like everybody knew it was there and that's where you're aiming. Um, and I, th- I guess that might be the tradition is that people kind of had their own little little cabins up there, little small trailers and stuff like that. And we all worked together on cutting shooting lanes and, you know, planting food plots. And, um, you know, I guess that's kind of what the people who did that growing up, I guess it's, that's what they grew up doing. I mean, I've listened to some other hunting podcasts and stuff and kind of heard what different people do in different areas. And it sounds like it's kind of similar at least everywhere like Midwest to East. I don't know in the West, it sounds like it's kind of a different animal, but, um, yeah, definitely the, the deer camp, the, um, food plots, to, you know, tree stands that are there. I, I kind of quickly realized I don't like that. <laughs> it bothers me, like, sitting still, knowing that there's a theater right there, and just, oh, God, I get so bored. So, like, I whenever I go down there with him, I, um, like, try to find a stand that's away from everyone where I'm just, like, looking at trees and sticks and stuff. It's more interesting to me
0: yeah so what was that like for you you know picking up hunting at a later age and you know it's uh I really like you know kind of the reasoning behind uh you know for for yourself wanting to get into hunting is you know wanting to be able to have some of those shared experiences with your son as he got older so you mentioned that you reached out to a cousin who who brought you to a hunt camp uh, a hunting hunting camp excuse me So what was that like? I mean, you know, from four years ago to now, you know, how has that process been for you?
1: Well, the, um, I feel like I should add too, it wasn't just to have something to do with my son. It was also the thing that you hear about a lot of people, um, who get started later. It was also the kind of knowing where your food comes from. I mean, pre COVID I was kind of thinking, you know, as unlikely as it might be, there's a chance that, you know, the economy could fail and where am I going to get food? Right. I mean, I'm not a prepper or whatever. I just was kind of like, what am I going to do for my family? Having a kid kind of makes you think about things like that that you wouldn't have considered before, I guess. And um, so that was part of the reason too. Is just kind of I don't even know how to feed myself exactly. So, so that was it. But um, <clears throat> the four four years ago or whatever it was starting, um, I didn't see. I saw one deer the entire year, and I can't tell you how many times I went out and tried. And I, it was a doe, <laughs> and I had I had left my climbing stand by the car, and I walked down this path to kind of see where I wanted to put the tree up, because my climbing stand was so heavy, I didn't want to carry it down if I, did, if I wasn't going to go down there. Um, and on my way back, there's a doe like, standing right there, and I'm like, oh my God, there's a deer. <laughs> and I pulled up the gun. <laughs> I was shaken. I mean, if I pulled the trigger, there's no telling what I would have hit. But that deer, like, I was so shocked at how long it like stood there. Like, that's one of those things I guess you learn, like, when you start hunting, you learn things about these animals that you didn't know. Uh, but like, it's like, they can't really, really see, can they? It, it's just, it's interesting. And, you know, of course, I didn't shoot at her in the, the next year. Um, I guess I learned a little bit more combined with, of course, having some luck and my first deer I shot was a, I can't remember what you call it, but there's some kind of disease that can happen or whatever that causes a, a buck to remain in velvet after they're supposed to lose it. Okay. And so my first one was a six-point little velvet buck. And, um, man, I was so proud. I, I would have it on my um, 2% page or whatever if I didn't. Fail to clean the blood up because it's just you know a bloody picture with a big smile on my face but <laughs> um but it was a cool experience and then after that actually we get three bucks a year as long as one of them has four points on one side
0: oh wow okay. i don't know if you
1: know this alabama gets a doe a day really like, and our hunting season is from like the middle of october to the middle of february oh so, wow yeah, it's insane. It's actually, my wife wishes it was much shorter because since I've gotten into it, I <laughs> kind of want to go every chance I can.
0: Yeah, I know how that um, goes.
1: <laughs> but, the, um, yeah, anyway, the next, next year I got those three bucks, so I, I bucked out or whatever you want to call it. Um, and then since then it's been, you know, I'm not trying to get the biggest antlers or whatever, but I've enjoyed, you know, passing some of the younger ones on our own property to kind of be like, you know, I want to see if I can... You know, watch until they get bigger, and I've got trail cameras everywhere. I, I feel like I'm just kind of g- throwing myself all into this, and I love it. I've, I've hunted some public land some. Um, I, think, I don't think – well, I've shot a couple of deer on public land, but it was, like, right off of my cousin's hunting club. Like okay. It borders public land, so I'll, like, go with them to the hunting club and then, like, walk an extra 500 yards and be on public or whatever.
0: There you go. Yeah, no, for, for one, I knew – that like um you know the hunting seasons in the south certainly ran uh later uh i did not know about the doe a day which is is crazy to me to think how many deer that you could stack up over the course of a season um i mean i got to imagine that people that are, are you know really taking advantage of that are you know not only you know filling their freezer you know three times over but are also, you know, sharing a lot of that meat with uh with friends and family uh and stuff like that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You know, that's one of the cool things too I didn't expect about hunting is um like the sharing the, something like the pride of wanting to share the meat. Like I don't think I'd ever like like buy a pound of beef at the grocery store and like take it to a friend's house and be like, do you want this? <laughs> but like, I've got some piano tuning customers who I've talked to a little bit and they're like, well, I just love venison, you know? And I'm like, okay. And the next time I go, I'll bring them a little bit of cube steak or whatever. And, um, it's, that's cool. And then also like pre COVID at least, like, you know, I'd have friends over to grill a lot and, I you know, share some tender ones with them or whatever. And my freezer's actually still, not full or anything, but it still got a lot more meat than I usually would have at this time because, you know, a lot of those things were kind of shut down. Like friends didn't want to come over nervous about getting sick and stuff like sure. that. And, um, so I look forward to get getting back to that more because that, that kind of a neat part of it was unexpected.
0: Yeah. It's what my friend Mark Haslam refers to as venison diplomacy, right? Being able to, yeah. to share that with everyone. Like it's, um, uh, It's, you know, I have, uh, I would say almost a vast majority of my friends, um, don't hunt. So we always do this guy's, uh, ski trip every year. There's probably about five or six of us and, um, you know, we'll, we kind of like rent a cabin or whatever and we'll bring a little grill and everyone kind of brings some meat to grill up and stuff like that. So every year I'm bringing, you know, different cuts of venison. Last year I brought, uh, some steaks and some like bratwurst that I had and they just, they love it. I mean, they just... Since they don't, I mean, it's almost like a treat for them, right? I mean, they maybe get it once a year, or or, or right. maybe twice if if they have some other friend that uh, that hunts and wants to wants to share some venison with them. But um, it's really cool to yeah, to it's, it's 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 almost like very prideful, right? Like 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 look what I it, it's almost like a, uh, I don't want to say like a humble brag, right? But it's like th- you, there's certainly like this this proud feeling that you get with you know. Sharing, you know, your, your harvest, your venison, uh, you know, even if it's not venison, you know, ducks, you know, upland birds, whatever the case is, uh, to be able to share that with them and then tell the story. Right. Cause that's, that's kind of my favorite part, especially when I get together with some of my buddies is like, yeah, this is how it all went down. Right. Like before you have to, before you eat this, like you have to know the story of this deer and, uh, yeah. you know, whether they care or not, like it's always exciting to me to, to kind of give them a, a full picture of, you know, how this really came to be, you know, on the grill in front of them.
1: I may have taken that too far one time I I had some friends over and I was like do you want to go see where this meat came from because I had the shoulder mount on the wall and everything and I think that was a little bit weird for him. Uh, There's something about it being a little bit more abstract me just telling the story than like here's the head of the deer where that came from anyway.
0: No you should absolutely be proud of that and I I urge you to do that more often. Put people in uncomfortable situations like that (laughs) Um. So let's kind of shift gears here. Um, tell me about Robertson Piano. Um, well, I started off just, you know,
1: tuning my own piano. I think I think it was two thousand one. People ask me when when I started tuning, and I can't really give a date when I started tuning. And we could call it like a professional thing, but started on my own about twenty years ago. And then gradually, you know, tuned for friends and and their acquaintances and stuff like that. And, and I've moved into musical theater full-time doing um, production management and um, audio, like sound design, uh, while kind of tuning pianos on the side here and there. Um, but that eventually, I mean, being a production manager, anybody who does stuff like that, you know there's really, like, your hours are just whenever. Like, you have to always be available and you know, that would become like 80-something hour weeks and my son was going to be born soon and it's like, okay, I got to shift and eight years ago or so I shifted toward doing this full-time and I've kind of played around with rebuilding pianos and um, repairing pianos in addition to just tuning for a while Um, and, and I've really moved more toward wanting to kind of do custom rebuilds of pianos and I've gotten into that some more lately especially like with COVID, like you know, my son's school closed and I'm like out of work because nobody wants me in their home to tune their piano. And so I started taking any shop work that would come. Um, So I'm going to say that now Robertson Piano is probably focused a little bit more on piano restoration and customization than we are on um, tuning, though I still do that a couple of days a week. But I'm, you know, taking somebody's family heirloom piano and giving it a new look and uh, new life so that when they hand it down, they're not handing down this piece of junk that doesn't really work for their grandkids to learn on. They're handing down something that's going to work for another 7,500 years or whatever. Um, you know, In tuning, I see kids learning on instruments that are they're really pretty rough. So um, I don't know if you ever saw my logo. I, I, uh, it's a clock with keys on it. And um, the idea is that my job is basically to help kids last longer. Um, So now I've got a shop where I'm doing storage, rebuilds, restoration, custom work, and um, also tuning. And my mentor, who's probably – I mean, it's hard to say because it's not like I travel everywhere, but I think he's probably the best rebuilder in Alabama, if not one of the top ones in the southeast. And thankfully, he has moved his shop into mine, so we're able to do a lot more now. I don't know. I guess that kind of covers it we just you know tune and rebuild and repair and try to make pianos look better and last longer
0: yeah no that's uh that's super interesting to me because truth be told so when I was in middle school i um i I was in band I guess that's what they they call it at that at that point um and yeah. I uh was like i want to play I want to play the drums which apparently is the percussion and I thought it was just the drums but apparently you've got to learn like the bells that go with it and then you know shortly after that I was like yeah this isn't for me like I don't have a musical bone in my body when it comes to being able to play an instrument and I'm always super fascinated and impressed with people who just have this you know natural ability to pick up an instrument um, you know listen or watch someone play you know some chords anything like that, and then just be able to, you know, to repeat it, um, or to be able to just kind of, you know, if they have a guitar, you know, just be able to like riff on a guitar on their own. Like that's like, that's always just like something I really envy in, in people who are musically inclined, because I know that, you know, it may take years and years and years of practice for me to be able to even, you know, be on somewhat of the same level as someone who, you know, has done it for a year, right? So did you start playing piano then at a pretty young age? Was I mean is has music always been a big part of your life?
1: Yeah, I started I started taking lessons when I was eight. When I was like three, I told my mom I wanted to play the piano, but somebody who taught locally said, Okay, you need to wait till he can reach an octave, which is basically like reaching a C to a C with one hand, like a C to the next C up. Right. Um And so, I mean, that's bad advice for anybody listening. Please, if your kid's interested, just let them do it. (laughs) But um, anyway, so I got a later start than I would have otherwise. And uh, yeah, I took piano all through high school. I think think the year of high school, I was kind of bored with it and, you know, teenager or whatever. Like I I decided that I was going to do something different for a year. And so I did music composition, um, like working on Doing music on the computer and stuff, keyboards and stuff like that. It was pretty cool. And then um, when it came time to decide on college, I ended up going into music composition. Um, and then I have a master's in music composition, which I'm still paying for and ultimately not using. But it certainly <laughs> led to a lot of, of a lot of interesting experiences, like a year as a um, exchange student in Japan. You know, of course, getting to learn how to do audio, which led to the musical theater stuff. I mean, it, I wouldn't change it for the world, but um, I did, I looking back, I had somebody, I think it was maybe freshman year, or maybe it was right before I was going to college, talk to me, because they'd see me come in the piano shop a lot, it was the owner of the piano store, um, French Forbes, he he said, you know, if you're interested in learning piano tuning, we can send you up to Steinway, and um, you can learn some stuff there, and then come back, just in exchange for work at us for a while, and you know, if you do it right, you can make six figures. And that was, you know, 20-something years ago. And I was like, oh, yeah, okay, sure. Uh, and then I go get, you know, tens of thousands of dollars of college debt and finally, ultimately, end up to the pianos anyway. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> if I could change that, maybe I would go back and change that. But um, anyway, yeah, it's been an interesting life, always, always filled with music so far.
0: Yeah. Now you said that you do uh, like production management work. So is there a pretty big scene for like music and, and whatnot in the South? I mean, when I think of like music in the South, I think of a lot of like jazz and maybe it's just like my mind always goes to like, you know, the scene in like New Orleans and, and stuff like that. And, you know, is is that is there a pretty big scene for that in Alabama?
1: I mean, there are a lot of venues around here. I certainly am not an expert on kind of the music scene in general. What I, what I mostly did was musical theater. Um, and that was, you know, there's a regional theater here, Red Mountain Theater Company, that, um, you know, they continued to grow. And, um, you know, I'd say that musical theater for Birmingham size is probably pretty big, or at least getting back there. Everybody had a little bit of a pause for a while. But, um, yeah, I mean, there are bands that, there there's some great venues here that bands come through to to play at, um, like we'll see Saturn, Birmingham Music Hall. I don't know, like I, it, it's always been something in Birmingham that you could go do, but I don't know. It's not like Austin or something like that where yeah, there's they're just known for being a musical city.
0: Yeah. So <sighs> you started you so you actually opened Robertson Piano like 20 years ago. Is that is that correct?
1: Well, I would say I tuned my my piano 20 years ago. Okay. Uh, Robertson Piano became official, like an LLC, maybe like three or four years ago, um, and I started doing it about full-time about eight years ago. So okay. I don't know when to say it really started, but it's gradually since 20 years ago.
0: Okay. Now, you also mentioned that you kind of uh, got into like piano restoration and stuff, so kind of what does that process look like um, you know, for one, like, I I can't even imagine, you know, what it takes to move a piano from someone's home uh, to like, I'm looking like I can kind of see my front door a little bit from my office here. And, you know, to try to get a piano in or out of my front door seems virtually impossible. So what is that? I guess the whole process like from from a customer bringing it in to getting it into your shop to, you know, doing the restoration? I mean, you know, what does the process look like? How long does that take?
1: yeah typically, um I hire a movie a mover because I want to be able to walk when I'm eighty, and pianos are very heavy, <laughs> yeah um but for a grand piano, they'll actually turn it on its side and put it on what's called a skid, and they'll remove the legs and that's how it fits through the door um is basically on its side um and upright pianos are actually narrow enough that they can they can fit through a door too um but yeah. Uh, stairs and all that I'll move it. if there's zero stairs I'll do it I've got a loading dock here I could pull right up to but so they'll anyway move your company brings it in sets it up um, I get to work like taking everything apart labeling and then we start removing strings taking the keys off removing the action and my what I really like to do is have it refinished I usually outsource that too. I'm actually doing one myself. We're we're spraying the finish today, but I don't like to because it's it's just not my specialty and it takes me longer than it takes somebody else, so it's worth worth paying them. But um I'll um we'll refinish the plate, make it look nice, restring it, sometimes put a new soundboard in, new pin block. Um but then I'll put in an action uh called W N G Wesley Growth. It's it's really a modernized action that's unlike in a lot of ways, it's unlike what typically goes in a piano. And, I mean, it's just great. Like, when you set it, it stays there. It's wonderful to work with. Um, I really feel like more and more pianos are going to have that in it. But I love taking these old antique pianos and, like, kind of tricking them out with this modern action. And, um, you know, then I'll add a player system to it. So, like, you could just get on your iPhone. And, or you I mean, you could even... Set them up sometimes where you can tell Alexa, "Hey Alexa, tell piano to play Christmas music," and it'll do it. Like that—that that sort of stuff is so cool to me. To like take these pianos that may have been like one of those old scroll, stick a quarter in, and it'll play a song for you or whatever, and like make it give it another hundred years of life, but like in a totally modern way. Um, my dream would be if somebody would let me like do a chrome finish on their plate, and you know. I don't know, put some LED lights in there and, like, make it, like... I yeah, know. <laughs> really, really <laughs> I modernize it. Nobody's going to pay me to do it yet, but um, <laughs> that's, that's what I'd love to do.
0: Yeah, it's kind of like Pimp My Ride, but for pianos, which I I, I exactly. like. I like yeah. that thought. Now, how long does that entire process take?
1: Oh, man, it's, I mean, 300 hours or so, maybe. Like, it's very time-consuming to do all that. Cause, I mean, you imagine, like, a piano built in the factory. I mean, they may be able to turn out hundreds a year, but they take months and months to do, even with all those workers. And here it's like me and uh, Mike, who I told you, my mentor basically. And um, every now and then you'll have some helpers come in, because they're they're kind of like toying with the idea of becoming piano tuners, and they'll help some. But really, for the most part, it's me and Mike, and 300 hours takes a long time to to get through when you're also out tuning. I've got one that's been in here. I told them it would be six months to 12 months, and I think I'm on month eight right now. I've um, got another one that's been in here for about three months, and I believe I've got another four months on yet. So it takes a while um, with more staff, obviously, it'd be quicker. But, um, yeah, it's, it's a very involved process, but it gets you basically a piano that's like new or even better than new because of some of the technology that's come around since whatever
0: piano was built. Yeah, and I would imagine that uh, as the process kind of goes, right, you, you kind of find different things to that you can do to improve it. Um, and the the piano is is one of those like you say kind of family heirlooms so to speak, but it's it's one that gets used. I mean, w- when people think about something that's, you know, passed down from generation to generation a lot of times, you know, it might be like a watch right, or, or something like that, yeah. like a, a, you know, father gives a son a watch, you know, it, it was given to him by his grandfather or his father. And, you know, a really nice timepiece, whatever. And that just gets passed down and passed down. But the piano is, I mean, it's kind of a it's a statement piece instead of, you know, on your person. It's a statement piece for your home. Right. And it's something yeah. that that people, I would imagine, um, you know, take a lot of pride in in having in their homes.
1: They do. And, well, I'm going to say this publicly. This is like a joke between piano tuners, I guess, that like a lot of times people probably give their pianos more value, like way more value than they should because of that quality. Um, but I don't, you know, disparaging for that is just kind of funny because you tune in a piano that's like really should have already been sent to the junkyard and people are so proud of it because it was their grandmother's piano. Um, So, you know, you just do your best to keep it along until it really does completely die. But um, part of my my mission in life is to either get them to upgrade or get that piano to last longer so that their kid's not trying to learn on a piano that really shouldn't be a learning instrument. You know, a lot of times people are like, oh, I don't need it to be that good because we're not a concert artist or whatever. And it's like, and you'll never be if you keep (laughs) playing on that thing, you know
0: but so now when you're you know kind of pre-covid or i don't know if if things have gotten a bit better uh down there now and people feel a bit more comfortable with with coming into having you come into their home and and tune their pianos but you know how long does you know tuning a piano take i mean is it something that's a couple hours or is it you know a couple day process i mean you know what is what does that look like uh
1: typically it's a hour a little bit more to tune it and then you know, I always do more than just tuning, just, you know, repeat myself, I guess, but just back to the trying to help the piano last longer. Like, I feel like there's things that rather than try to sell a tuning and then separately sell additional work to kind of keep the piano maintained a little better, I just like raise my prices above a tuning price, and I include that anyway. So I'll like I'll maybe clean the inside out, get all that dust out. That's going to cause corrosion later, or I'll I'll make adjustments to make it play better or voice it some to make it sound better, easier to control. Like there's a whole lot of things that can be done on a piano beyond tuning. So, um, you know, for me, a first visit is closer to two and a half hours and subsequent visits might be closer to two hours, but, but tuning itself is really about hour, hour and 15 minutes.
0: Okay. That's not too bad now as a piano player yourself is there um you know like a pianist or anything like that that you've you know you've kind of always looked up to or that you you know is is kind of i guess from a a playing standpoint kind of like your idol i guess or someone you kind of aspire to to maybe hope to be one day
1: i may be unusual in this regard with pianists i don't know but there's a couple of guys that I, I follow and am really interested in, fascinated by their ability. That, one is uh, Mike Garson. He was a keyboard player for David Bowie. Okay. Um, I didn't know this when I was first like, kind of his fan. I don't know how I ended up, ended up coming across it, but there was this jazzy Christmas book that I bought randomly at a music store here in Gardendale once. And um, it was like my Christmas book for years. I still can't play some of the stuff in that because it's so hard, um, or for me at least. And um, he, like, there's a nine-inch nail song that I really like. I cannot tell you the name of it right now, but like, like he's the pianist on it. I didn't know that until like in college or whatever. But like, I always liked that song. I was like, man, that pianist is crazy. He's just playing this stuff that sounds wild. Um, and anyway, that's that's Mike Garson. So he's I'm. I'm a big fan of his. He just does super cool jazz improv. But the other guy is um, Jordan Rudess, who's the uh, keyboard player for Dream Theater. Um, and, I mean, just technical player, super good. I mean, just out of this world, technical skills. And, you know, I do not have those. I, I have some, but, you know, I have certainly have lost some too as I've stopped playing as much. And I just really look up to those guys.
0: Yeah, so... I'd imagine that, you know, just given your kind of musical background and that it's always been a part of your life, I mean, studying it in college uh, and then, you know, your your postgraduate work, when you listen to music, like, is that kind of the first thing that you're listening for is, you know, some type of, you know, keyboard, piano, some type of, uh, I mean, just really kind of breaking the music down because I'd imagine, you know, really anyone that, that has uh, kind of i guess let's call it musical intuition right They're they're able to kind of pick things apart when they listen to it so is that kind of how you approach uh you know music and and things that you're listening to
1: well i think once you like kind of become trained like college level trained or whatever in music you can't help but hear pop music stuff like that differently like I've never been like a words guy. Like, honestly, there are songs that are my favorite songs. I still don't know the lyrics to I just like the music and the sound of the instruments. Um, and some of the stuff is so simple as far as the chords go. Um, I mean, either people joke around, like you learn five chords, you can play like half the country songs or whatever (laughs) that people know. And, and that doesn't, I mean, it's not about that. Honestly, you listen to country music and it's a little bit more about the story. So like, um, So I get that, but like you hear, I hear it differently, and I can't unhear that. You know, I can't just enjoy the music for its own own sake, on its own terms. I have to like, I hear the chords, kind of know what the progression is, stuff like that. I don't know if that adds or takes away, but um, can't help that. The, The stuff I like the most is, I mean, honestly, I'm probably weird as far as piano tuners go, but I like, you know, Tool, Corn, stuff like that, you know, heavy stuff and mostly it's just the energy behind it you know the power of the sound like i'm more interested in that i guess than than the words and music and um i don't know if that's i don't know i guess i'm rambling now you said don't worry about rambling but
0: yeah no that well first off when you mentioned um one of your your favorite pianists did you know played um the piano on a 9 inch nail song i was like hmm that's pretty interesting that i i mean i just i don't like put the two together, right? When I think about you know nine inch nails or even some of the the bands that you just mentioned, like I don't think of I don't think of a piano, right? I think of you know bass and drums and you know just just different types of you know kind of heavy hitting sound, so to speak, right? And I yeah. when I tend to think of a piano, I tend to think of you know a bit more elegant and um, you know just uh, kind of a softer sound, but I, I certainly know that that's not you know, the way that, that, that a piano is always played, right? I know that you can, you know, manipulate it, you know, the keys and the, and the chords and, and everything like that and, and create some pretty incredible sound from it.
1: Well, sure. And most of that stuff that I mentioned, like they don't have piano. So I guess I just kind of like music in general. But, um, but yeah, when it is there, unfortunately, like piano and rock music kind of died about 40 years ago or something, right? Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah, it's true. Uh, I'm waiting for the comeback.
0: Every everything's making a comeback these days. It doesn't matter what it is. Just give it some time. It'll it'll resurface. Yeah, sure. So obviously, Brandon, the reason that we've been able to, to sit down and, and get to talk here is is that uh Robertson Piano is a two percent certified company. So how was it that you being a piano tuner learned about two percent for conservation?
1: Um Jared asked me that same question and I, I don't know for sure. It was, I know it was a podcast, but I don't know which one, um, you know, feeling a little lost in knowing what to do when I was starting deer hunting. as I mentioned earlier, like I, you know, found podcasts to be a helpful way to, to kind of feed that a little bit. I mean, I don't know how much I've learned from them for sure, but I definitely, it kept me interested and kept me trying. And just one of the guys interviewed, Shared for um, one of the podcast episodes I listened to it and I was like that'd be pretty cool and I was at the time like kind of um I don't know how to put it but I was like becoming more official I'm looking into buying this building i am you know getting new bank accounts like all of that stuff forming an LLC like all that process had me kind of look at my accounting differently and you know i'm not I'm not really religious or anything I don't have somewhere to that I ties to um but I um, do you feel like giving is important? And, you know, I, I really ultimately heard about it, heard about 2%, heard the interview, felt like this is a good opportunity for me to honestly kind of force myself to do it, like you know, to stay uh, accountable. Like there's some organization that's going to look at me like, did you actually do it? You know, how much did you make? How much did you give? You know, so, and I have found it to be helpful. I mean, I've there are some months I'm kind of like, don't think about going and picking up trash on the trail or whatever. And I, you know, I'm like, oh yeah. Well, it's been about a month and a half since I even did that, and I got to get my hours in. And you know, when I hear some of the people you interview, I'm like, that's kind of sad. Like, I feel like those people are like, it's just part of their life that they just do it. And for me, it's it's not. Like, it's something new to me. But I'm, um, you know, having that account, that thing that's going to hold me accountable has certainly been helpful in making sure that I do do my part because I, feel, I do ultimately feel so grateful for, you know, the ability to go and fish and hunt and, and all that and just walk around, you know, these trails and stuff. And, um, you know, I don't know. I guess I didn't grow up um, donating time or volunteering or giving money to organizations and stuff. And so the 2% thing seems like a good way to, to keep me on track with that.
0: Yeah, no, that's, that's a great way. And, you know, I think it kind of goes with, you know, the whole episode and, you know, it's different, right? Like the, your reasoning behind it is different. Um, I think ultimately, you know, the, the end reason or the, the purpose for doing it is the same, but kind of how you got there is different uh, than maybe some other people who, you know, just grew up in the outdoors all the time. And, you know, conservation has been, you know, this kind of pillar in their life. Uh, forever, but to look at it in that regard and say, you know, uh, I'm getting, you know, more actively involved in the outdoors. You know, I, I realize, you know, the, the kind of fragile nature uh, that is the outdoors and, you know, how much you enjoy it and, you know, wanting to be able to preserve that and, you know, just finding a mechanism to, to help keep you accountable and, you to, to make sure that, you know, you're giving back, you know, at the same time as, you know, taking from the land with, you know, with hunting. Uh, I think that's a really cool way to look at it. And, you know, I think that for anyone, whenever, you know, however they're able to, um, keep themselves, uh, active and engaged, uh, you know, whatever that method is, you know, more power to them because it's, you know, it's, it's not like this, this one size fits all model, conservation, right? I mean, everyone practices it in different ways. Um, you know, everyone's involvement is at different levels, but it's all like, it's all good stuff, right? Like anytime you're out outside and like you said, you know, like, you know, heading to the trailhead and picking up trash or, you know, going to your local waterway and cleaning up or donating some time with an organization, like it's all good, right? Because, you know, the day before that trash was there that next day it's gone, right? Like it's, it's just making things, even if you, you know, you look at it kind of in the, in the grand scheme of things, you know, even if like, just like the whole state of Alabama, right? Like if you picked up a, you know, trash along a, you know, quarter mile stretch of, of trail, you know, that's, you know, and, and more and more people do that. I mean, that has a super big impact. And, you know, I certainly commend anyone, um, that does that, you know, regardless of the reasons or motivations.
1: Yeah, definitely. And that, you know, like I said, I didn't grow up doing it, but I'm hoping that maybe i can pass this torch on a little bit to my kid because he he does join me on some of them he may complain sometimes but he'll he'll join me on um you know we'll we'll make a deal out of it like we'll go pick up trash around the bicycle trail and then after that we'll like take a lap you know but um hopefully he's he's getting a little bit out of that at least as an example and he can um they can follow that further because you're right like if everybody just did a little bit, it would be pretty amazing. But, you know, it seems like there's
0: just a few people doing a little bit more. Um, yeah. And, I mean, you're absolutely right, like, w- with the reference that you made to your son there. Uh, there's no doubt in my mind that, you know, the more he does it with you and the more he, you know, just kind of sees uh, as he gets older, um, you know, your appreciation for the outdoors and why you guys are out there doing that it'll, it'll almost just be one of those things that, you know, when the time, you know, he gets of age, like it's, it's, it's just natural, right? Like it's just, you know, when he gets to be, you know, our age, he can be like, yeah, I don't know. Like I, I just, I grew up, you know, you know, picking up trash and, you know, trying to take care of, you know, the lands where my dad and I hunted. Right. And then, you know, you're, you're, you're almost creating like this, this shift, uh, you know, in in your family and in the outdoors, as it pertains to your family, with how you look at it and how you treat things. Yeah, totally. So, what are some of the organizations um, that you're giving back to there with Robertson Piano?
1: Um, I started off Alabama Water Watch. Uh, they're a volunteer, like a citizen volunteer water quality monitoring program. A mouthful, but basically, they um, you. People volunteer. They learn how to do water tests with you know, various chemicals in a kit that you could buy specifically for them. And you um, you adopt a location and you do your water tests. You know, hopefully, regularly. And um, that information goes on the website. They're they're part of Auburn University, which um, I don't know how involved they are at Auburn University, but. Um, you know, that stuff is public, like all the records are public from all the water tests and people use them in various ways, whether it's like to, um, to find out, you know, what kind of disturbances might be happening in the water, like if the oxygen levels seem to be low over a certain period of time, then maybe there's something upstream, like a development that's letting runoff, you know, into the creeks or there's, you know, some plant or whatever, you know. Up somewhere dumping chemicals or whatever like that information can be used that way but it's also used you know just by people doing studies of water over time like they'll take the records and you know professors might use it for whatever research project they got going on so that's that's one thing I do is um do some of the water testing but um you know over time over these few years I've been a member I've kind of like moved into other things that might be a little bit more interesting to me I a mean, freshwater land trust probably is the one that that I give to the most, both time and money. Um, they're, uh, they they help people with like get conservation easements on their property. They'll buy property to do that. Um, they're basically protecting land around the Birmingham area and the surrounding counties. Um, I mean, they've done some really cool projects, or or help other organizations to like do some projects. There's there's one like Turkey Creek Nature Preserve, which is Just you know a beautiful area that might otherwise be bought and turned into a subdivision but they've got it you know blocked off by with conservation easements and you know multiple organizations kind of came together to do that it was like one of those public private partnership things and um, there's another thing kind of recent I want to say it was like 15 years ago or so it was created Red Mountain Park here it's just another place with you know trails and stuff like that that people can go to. And just people from all over Birmingham will go there and walk around. And it was, uh, I think, that I hope I'm not wrong about this, but I think it used to be like a large, like U.S. steel-owned property or something. And they worked with Freshwater Land Trust to, um, to create that park and sold it to them, like, at a major discount and, you know, all that stuff. So they're doing good stuff all around. They've even started, uh most recently, their project is Connecting, Uh, different paths, whether it's a sidewalk or like a greenway trail or something around Birmingham and out to all the towns and cities around. I mean, I think their ultimate goal is to like have 200 miles of greenways like connected by like 600 miles of sidewalks, bicycle trails, stuff like that. Like, I mean, Gardendale, for instance, is like 15 minutes north of Birmingham, which is where uh, Freshwater Land Trust is based. And we've got Um, I've got a trail here and then there's a city even further north that's um, got a trail and they're ultimately getting it to connect so like there's just miles and miles long trail that you could basically start in downtown Birmingham and walk or bike or whatever and um, it's all done by them so I really really love what they're doing Um, so I've been um, like I said we basically became a corporate partner which is kind of funny to think of my little company is a corporate partner, but that's what we're doing, um, i am also like, that was kind of like at the beginning, I'm like, well, what are my customers going to think if they go online and they find out that a deer, like, are they going to be weird about that? Like, it's not, I mean, I hear Jared talk about like people's, you know, companies joining because their customers and they consider conservation that important. And I feel like that is true for Sitka or somebody like that, you know, right? but for me, I don't think people could care one way or the other. I really mostly do it like I said to hold myself accountable. But um I did start like I bought one of those conservation crossing T shirts that Public Land Tees was selling. Oh yeah, yep, yep. So it ended up joining like five organizations and um the National Deer Association, I joined them and joined Quail Forever and it's just been kind of fun, like because now I've got like money I literally have a bank account called giving right so like my money comes in and then every each twice a month i like split it up and you know certain percentage goes in the giving account so now it's like i'd like to you know give a couple hundred bucks to this group i mean mississippi state uh deer lab like i sent them a 100 bucks one time yeah it's small stuff but it's fun to like see somebody doing something that you want to support and just be able to like give so I would say mostly freshwater land trust but there's really like a whole bunch of different organizations i've given this a little bit to here and there um
0: yeah and that yeah, I guess that, yeah no that's quick quick shout out to sam soholt um he's been a guest on the podcast the the conservation crossing the um the uh, what do you want to call it the the project that he did with that was, was super cool, and I'm sure that uh, him and his brother Josh, who own Public Land Tees, which is also a 2% certified brand, um, raised a lot of money uh, for a lot of different organizations there, and that was, that was super cool. I remember actually when I had him on, it was right before uh, he had announced that. And he couldn't tell me about it on air. But when we got done talking, he was like, yeah, I'm going to make this T-shirt and I'm going to sell it for a hundred bucks and you're going to get, you know, four or five memberships out of it and you're going to get a T-shirt. And I told him like, you know, Sam, if anyone's going to get someone to just pay a hundred bucks for a T-shirt, like it's going to be you with everything that he's done with the Stamp It Forward uh, and just the the public land kind of tour that he did with the bus and the van. I'm like you won't have a problem selling those t-shirts and it, you know, it, 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 by all accounts it appears that it was, uh, another successful, uh, project that, uh, that they put together over there.
1: Yeah, it's a super cool idea. And it was, it was, I don't know, it was fun to do. And, you know, I'm probably, I think my renewal is coming up about right now for, for all that stuff. And, um, I may not renew each of those, but you know, I decided, to um, instead of fence Forever, join Quail Forever, which I think is the same organization, but just my stepdad's a quail hunter, and we have like 10-acre fields where they do that. And um, so, you know, it was like an intro into continuing some of these memberships. I'll, I'll certainly rejoin Wild Turkey Federation and Backcountry Hunters and Anglers, and there's all those various ones that came along with it. I, I mean, it, it worked beyond the T-shirt because now it's kind of like once you're in, for the most part, people tend to renew. Yep. So, I'll be one of those people too.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And that's and what I really liked about kind of your approach to to giving back was, you know, as you've gotten further involved with conservation, you've you've kind of picked or or found kind of your niche a little bit and and things that you're passionate about, things that um you know you can kind of have a direct impact on, especially there in Alabama. And that's that's one of the things that that uh, that i really like about you know hearing people's story is you know they they find out you know what they're really passionate about and they're you know i feel like you almost have a bigger impact when you know you're your focus is a bit more narrowed, or your approach is a bit more narrowed uh, in terms of who you want to work with and who you want to give back to, because you don't stretch yourself too thin. And, and And I don't mean that in a negative way, because you know, joining you know different organizations is great, and, and the membership fees and, and any donations you make are, are certainly important uh, for helping those organizations achieve their mission. But um, you know, if if it's something right there at home, you know, not only uh, your money, but the time and, and the work that you can actually do right there on the ground is uh, is certainly invaluable.
1: Something um, I'm just gonna I don't I don't know where this fits or whatever, but something that just came to mind is you were talking about the opportunity to share. You know, if if you have a dough a day, right? The opportunity to share that meat so broadly or whatever. I would love. I don't think we have a very well developed like feed the homeless sort of thing. I don't know. I can't remember hunters for the hungry or whatever, like whatever those organizations are called. We have something sort of, um, but it's not very broad and there's not very many people involved. I don't know if there's anybody who's going to listen to this that has an idea about how to further develop something like that. But I tell you, that is something that I would certainly want to do because it's a win-win situation. I mean, like if if I shoot three does and two bucks, I'm basically going to have a, Free you that's too full we can't eat it all right right but if i have the opportunity to choose me doses i want i can go hunting whenever i want and i know it's going to go to a good cause and that's going to be true for any other hunter in alabama like I, I really would love to get something like that going or get whatever is there you know growing further so that more processes are involved and stuff like that um I guess i just take this opportunity to say that in case there's anybody around here or anybody in another state that knows, you know, please reach out to me because that—that's something for sure that I have an interest in is trying to figure out how to get something like that.
0: Yeah, no, and that's—I <clears throat> I think that that's um, a great idea, and I know that there's there's certainly some organizations out there like that, and I don't—I don't know a ton or really anything about how they operate, where they operate, uh, any any of that, but it's certainly. um, you know, a a way for us as hunters to, um, you know, not only uh, give back to people in need from a a food standpoint, but to, you know, potentially, um, you know, open the eyes to some people uh, who maybe have never really tried wild game, right, and give them an opportunity to, to have, you know, clean, lean, protein, um and you know kind of give them the opportunity to you know experiment with it when it comes to cooking and figure out you know how they like it and everything like that and um you know maybe spark an interest for them to to be you know a hunter or an angler uh or any of the above and, and you know get them involved in the outdoors as well
1: yeah absolutely
0: yeah well brandon i see we're coming up on about an hour here so Um, I just want to ask you one more question before I let you go is I know, um, this well, this is something that I kind of ask everyone is, do you have, uh, any hunting trips or, uh, fishing trips or anything like that kind of planned, uh, planned out here in the future that you're excited, that you're excited for, that you're looking forward to?
1: Um, well, our rut is in the area where I live in. I don't know if people are familiar with Alabama, but we imported deer from like, all over the place at some point decades ago and so like depending on what part of the state in you can have a rut like like beginning of november or whatever like most of the country and then you can um like i think on my parents land it starts up in a couple of weeks you'll start seeing scrapes everywhere actually on one of my cell cams i got a big guy um who i'm pretty excited about um and if actually I'd been hunting this morning, you would have been right by where I would have hunted according <laughs> to the wind. But my apologies. It, my apologies. But anyways, <laughs> no, no, it was it was 6 a.m. So missed opportunity, but, um, but still that lets me know he's around. So that's cool. So I'm certainly looking forward to our rut, which is coming up and everybody else is kind of like, well, I'm done. I didn't fill my tag. I'm like, come to Alabama or <laughs> don't come to Alabama. I don't know. Like we got, we have rut. I mean, depending on where you are, you really can't hunt the rut until February. So like, you just hop around the state and constantly be involved in like, in deer, you know, being dumb. And the, um, the only thing is, like, I feel like it's probably different than a lot of places. Like as far as the road goes. Um, I've yet to see more than one day of that craziness that people talk about, like where deer just like all over the place blowing and chasing and stuff yeah. like that. I saw that one day once. Maybe that's maybe that's about as often as anybody sees it. So maybe it's not different, but.
0: Yeah, why? Well, anyway, yeah, look well, forward to that. Yeah, well, I remember when we first started um, corresponding through email. There, you're like, well, if we could do it, you know, either you know, like late November or like the first week of December, that's going to be good. He's like, you, you, you know, you said that that'll be better because the rut's coming and you're going to be pretty tied up. So, no, I'm certainly glad uh, that we we're able to make this happen. And you know, obviously, I wish you, uh, you know, nothing but success with the business, and then also, um, you know, trying to put a big guy on the ground here in the next uh, month or so
1: thanks so much Marcus. appreciate
0: it. yeah, hey, one more quick question. Uh, obviously last week I don't know if you're a football fan or not, but obviously uh, last week was the Iron Bowl so are you a uh, an Auburn or an Alabama fan?
1: I am one of those rear birds in Alabama that didn't grow up watching football and I couldn't care less but my wife is an Auburn fan so I guess by connection I am an Auburn fan.
0: Yeah, war eagle there you go <laughs> <laughs> All right, Brandon well take care of yourself man and thanks for joining us thanks for joining me today. I appreciate it.
1: All right. Thanks again, Much. Take
0: All care. Right. Yep. Okay. Well, thank you again to Brandon for joining me today. Uh, I would like to thank the partners of the podcast, Wild Rivers Coffee, Stone Glacier, and Go Hunt. Uh, be sure and go out and support the companies that support this podcast and help make it possible. Uh, I would also like to thank 2% for Conservation. And if you're interested in learning more about 2% for Conservation, you can visit their website, fishandwildlife.org. And over there, you can see all the certified brands that have committed to conservation that you should support when you shop. I encourage you guys to follow 2% on social media as well, where they're going to post only positive conservation-driven content. So you'll certainly uh, enjoy that in your feed. So again, if you'd like to learn more about 2% for Conservation, you can look for them online on social media or at fishandwildlife.org. Thanks for joining me this week, everyone. Hope you enjoyed the episode. Stay tuned next week, and remember to stay safe out there, and conservation starts with you.